Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and together we interview a guest about their work in design, because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about design for the retail experience. I'll be joined by the amazing Larry Rogers, the head of retail and assisted channel experiences at Verizon. And later we'll chat with Toby Barnes, the head of user experience at Amazon Alexa Northstar. Together, we will learn how they have used design to engage customers in really cool ways. Before we dive in, just a reminder for our listeners, that's you. Please jump onto our podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, everywhere you listen and leave a review and a rating. It really helps us reach more people so we can chat about design with even more people. Help us grow this community. So give this episode a quick pause, add your review, and then start it up again. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the show. And with that, on to this week's topic, designing for retail. My personal favorite store experiences are when I'm able to interact with the product and I'm fully immersed in a brand and an experience. So how does design draw customers in and bring them back again and again? I'm very excited to chat with our guest co-host, Larry Rogers, to chat about how he approaches retail design. Larry has spent the last 19 years designing experiences and serving customers through the lens of health, fitness, and sport. He currently serves as the head of retail and assisted channel experiences at Verizon. Previously, Larry was the senior director of retail concepts at Nike, leading the company's global efforts for its flagship retail locations. Those are all beautiful flagship stores. Larry spent over a decade leading sales and marketing through the phone channel for Beachbody, best known for fitness and beauty brands such as P90X, Insanity, Shakeology, and Derm Exclusive. Larry's also on our board of directors, and I love having our board members as guest co-hosts. Larry's designs promote, entertain, and engage. Larry, welcome to the show. Hey, Sam. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to see you. No one else can see you, but I can, so <laughs> that's nice. I can see you as well. Beautiful smile. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're in like two different setups, right? You're in this like beautiful white room. I'm in like this dark cave. Yin and yang. That's right. It's all good. It's all good. We all go to stores of various scales, types, you know, these different environments. What do you think would be surprising for people to learn about what goes into designing for retail? Oh, what would be surprising? That's a good question. I don't know if this is surprising, but I think it is probably or maybe overlooked or <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's even misunderstood, but quite frequently, the, the, the biggest problem with designing something like a retail experience, especially when you're thinking about doing that from the perspective of working in a large organization, is that um, you have to work within the large organization to design the thing. <laughs> that's like <laughs> that's like the big that's the biggest challenge because it's really fun uh, and you know you know it's fun to kind of get in a room with a small group of people you know, enough you know a two pizza party and mm -hmm. uh, and you know get on a whiteboard and kind of like dream something. Yeah. And then it's another thing to actually like get <laughs> yeah. a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar, you know, organization, in this case, a fortune 20 organization to like uh, move and like do the thing that you dreamt up. So the process around how you actually activate an organization to deliver an idea, that to me, I think is the most interesting part about retail design. <laughs> yeah, let's dive in on that. So I, I love that. You're making me think that the rubber really hits the road in that retail environment, right? Like that's when the 
purchasing is happening. You're either there or online. So when you are working on these projects, especially within a large organization, like what are some of the constraints that are sort of like swirling around these programs? You know, you have the, you have your normal things. So normal things are uh, things, you know, interpersonal issues. You know, this person doesn't get along with this person. And so go figure it out. Like that that's the easy stuff. Some of the bigger, I think, things you have to deal with are really budget concerns. You have, um, depending on the structure of the organization, if the organization is used to being a little bit more siloed and hierarchical, then uh, it can be difficult when you're trying to work cross-functionally in order to deliver a thing. And so, you know, the culture of the organization, uh, the culture of the leadership, management styles, uh, again, uh, budget, you know, your, your capital management and your budgeting processes or your sort of like risk aversion, your level of risk. Uh, that you're willing to assume as an organization. All those things can be, um, are like really interesting factors when it comes to like why you may or may not do a thing <laughs> or you may or may not do a thing like in the time in which you you wish to. What has the evolution of retail felt like to you sort of like pre-COVID, you know, with maybe technology changing things, but then certainly COVID is like a whole, it's forces change, if you will. Over the last year and a half or so, sort of digital adoption has accelerated just rapidly. And, you know, everyone has talked about that. You, people are starting to understand that. But the, the interesting thing is, I personally don't believe that we have or we will see any, any change that was not already planned. And what I mean by that is like the acceleration of plans has happened, but I don't think there's been a real big shift. And so the, the things that hold true for retail are still the things that hold true for retail. In fact, I think it's a really interesting opportunity for us right now for folks who are like in the retail profession to think about almost like reset and really think about what the unique sort of differentiating value that retail brings or physical retail brings that you don't see uh, in, the, in the digital space. So as an example, as more and more people are shopping online, what that also means, more and more people are doing sort of just discovery in general online, but uh, uniquely positioned to uh, deliver a differentiating experience is physical retail, sort of in the, in the fact that, you know, when you walk into a physical space, you have the ability to like deploy all of your senses. You can smell things, you can see things, you can interact with people and humans. Um, I actually still don't believe that we have from a, like, you know, in the business world, even fully valued the importance of human to human connection. Um, I don't. I don't know that we've like put a number on that and said like this actually means uh, something of real concrete value that we can point to. Um, but I think if you asked any human or person, they would say, "Yeah, there's something about that that's there." Um, even the most introverts of us, I'll raise my hand for that. Like I, you know, I, I love being by myself and playing video games in my in my in my ho- in my home in my room. But uh, there's something about going out and seeing people and talking to people and you know, even shaking hands or giving a hug that drives unique value. And so I think, you know, retail is uniquely positioned to deliver on those kinds of real human needs in a way that um, other mediums can't. Uh, And so it's an opportunity for us right now to really like capitalize on that in terms of the way we think about retail design and and how we think about our future. Mm -hmm. It's funny, even just like, I feel like this week, I'm starting to hear some pushback from folks about pure digital right? Like, oh, I keep buying things online. I get them and I hate them (laughs) or the quality's bad. And it's like, yeah, have we all just been like pushed to like pure one, you know, really one sense site, right? Photography to make buying decisions. We're missing out to your point on not only 
all five senses around an object or a product, but the connection with an expert, with a human. Is there some blend there that's like the special sauce of like, you know, digital's not going away and buying stuff online is so easy, but how do you convey quality and how do you experience things? Like what's that blend look like to you? That's a great question. Um, I, I tend to think about sort of maybe call them the the reasons customers go to retail or think about retail. Um, like I, I think about it in sort of four ways. There's sort of a level of, let's call it confidence that uh, customers want uh, in their purchase decision. Um, there's convenience, whether that's I want something fast or I want it you know, near me or something like that. And then there's personalization uh, and then inspiration. And I personally believe that um, like when you move closer toward the face-to-face human you know, channels, you can start to think about inspiration in a way um, and you can realize inspiration in a way that you can't in other channels, meaning um, inspiration and connection uh, can come from almost the connection that you create, not only just with the expert that you see in store, but also by um, being in a space with other people who believe in the same things you believe. So one of the things that we've learned over the last couple of years in terms of uh, changing consumer expectations is this idea that we talk about experience and CX all the time now. I'm putting my air quotes up. <laughs> so <laughs> so like as everyone knows air quotes so we, we talk about that all the time and um like you know ever increasingly um you know brands who are not have who don't have some omni-channel or cx offense uh that's just table stakes like we that net we expect that from from brands and so we're starting to learn that you know customers are really looking towards brands that are purpose-driven uh, as ways that connect them to that brand. But the great part is that it's actually not just connecting you to the brand, but it's also a place for you to convene with others who believe the things you believe. And so the physical space can be that connection point and that place where you come together uh, and interact with those folks. So as an example, um, I'm going to Disney uh, World in a couple of weeks. I'm super excited. And uh, like going on the rides, that's cool. But like, I'm just excited to be in a space with a lot of people wearing Mickey Mouse ears, like just like me. You know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> what I'm most excited about. Same reason why I go to Comic Con, same reason why mm-hmm. you do these things. Like just being in a space with people who you can connect with uh, can be a real value add. And so I think retail and physical retail has a a unique uh, ability to kind of deliver inspiration in that way. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So you mentioned Disney, which is coming up, but can you share an example of an in-store experience that changed the way you think about a brand, whether like brought you closer or made you more interested? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I went to recently the the Google store and there's a Google Hmm. store that's in uh, Manhattan. I now live in New York City and there's a Google store that's in Manhattan. You know, I, I walked into the store and it was funny because immediately just because of the, you know, the, I guess the profession I'm in, I started to ask the question of the reps. I basically took one of the representatives that was there and I was just asking him a ton of questions. And I was like, hey, tell me about this and about this. And they, that person was more excited about like being in that store and like the new kind of interesting space that the store and, and value the store added than I, maybe I was as a visitor who like read <laughs> about the thing online and all the cool stuff. And they had a gaming room and they had a, uh, and they had a sort of a, a, a vignette that was talking about sort of like your connected home experience 
students. And then they had this like really super cool place that uh, user Google AI machine learning like algorithm to like you literally could say anything and it would translate in thousands of languages in your eye. Like though, like that though for me was a super connected way to kind of demonstrate uh, the, the the different places and spaces that Google plays in. So I thought that was a really interesting, uh, unique uh, view. And then for me though, the most powerful thing was how excited the store rep was about being in that space itself. I think the magic is when you can uh, create a space where your store reps are as or more excited about the the experience itself uh, than the actual customers coming into the space. I mean, I think you've, you've struck gold. Yeah, that's that's it. That's the uh, success criteria. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Larry, for all of this. Uh, this is great to hear your perspective and clearly your passion for these experiences. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, listeners, to see more of Larry's work, uh, you can always visit a Verizon store near you. And Larry, stick around, and we'll bring Toby Barnes into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. Okay, we're back and we're joined by our special guest, Toby Barnes. Toby is a passionate entrepreneurial leader with over 20 years of experience building and managing teams with companies like Nike, Levi's, Microsoft, and MTV. He is currently the head of user experience at Amazon's Alexa North Star, where his designs help customers connect with Alexa for a uniquely personal experience. Previously, Toby was the global senior director of service and experience design at Nike, where he designed and launched a number of physical and digital services, experiences, and retail concepts. And he also created executive strategy direction at AKQA. In addition to working in retail strategy and design, Toby also founded and ran Mudlark, an award-winning digital design consultancy, as well as two gaming startups. Oh, gaming, gotta talk more gaming. Toby's designs rethink the traditional brick and mortar storefront. Toby, welcome to the show. Thank you for that. It's a long, posh introduction, love it. I mean, when it's all together like that and someone else reads it, nothing <laughs> nothing better than that. <laughs> That's great to have you. I want to get into some of the work you've done at Nike and now, you know, with Alexa. Talk a little about Nike and sort of like how's retail work with the app, the process around designing that experience? I think one of the things, there's a few things. One of the things that I, I always hold very dear to my heart was uh, um, there's a lot of, Nike has a lot of slogans. It has a lot of lines that that it uses, they're tenants that really help us remind us, you know, what we're doing. And often they're emblazoned huge on a wall or they're carved in wood. One of the walls had a, um, always listen to the athletes, always listen to the athlete's voice, which is very much a, a Nike way of saying that they're obsessed by the customer. And I remember uh, presenting once, I was doing some work around editorial production systems or something like that, something we knew it would make a huge difference to the business. But I presented to a VP and, you know, said this is excellent love it really really good but how is this going to make an athlete's life better 
And uh, honestly, we didn't have an answer. All of us would like spent <laughs> so much. Yeah. How do you pass and sign off and approve and get content in like all the usual things. And we all just, you know, bumbled away through that and went out to the pub and were like, damn, this is again, again, how does this improve an athlete's life? And it, it does because the XYZ, but we just hadn't told that story. And the next time we came back and presented, it was so much sharper. It was so much better. So I think from a designer's point of view, one of the amazing opportunities Nike gives is not only you know, have a huge high bar, like everything has to be the highest quality and the best way of doing it, but it also has to be in service of the athlete. And I think that's really rare in business these days. As you tell that story, Toby, one of the hardest things when you think about, you know, designing a physical space is not the dreaming of what the thing is going to be, but rather like the process through which you take the organization to get to that thing. What are some of the the biggest challenges maybe you say you faced in terms of telling the right story? You mentioned sort of the story about speaking in the athlete's voice. I would imagine that perhaps some of the like the forgetfulness that came with that moment was you were trying to figure out what was happening and how to get that story across to some business people and uh, and maybe for losing sight of what it meant to the customer. And I'm wondering, like, what are some of the challenges and sort of ways you navigated through that pull between the customer needs and the business needs? I think I'll go back and talk about trial zone again a little bit. Um, what was really interesting as a project is that it changed the way AKQA, which was a traditionally a digital agency, thought about experiences and physical spaces. But it also changed the way that Nike thought about designing physical spaces. We started off and we created agile teams. So versus having a architect draw some drawings or a strategist write a paper, present that, get that approved, then move to the next step. And then at the end, you've got the poor engineers at the end, given this impossible plan that they've got to build in a week. We actually created a team that had representation of each of those. And so we presented as a group. So we knew what, what we were making, we could make. We knew that the strategy was actually in hand in hand with the designers. And what that did was is that it enabled us to create prototypes as we went. So rather than having this big reveal like in Soho where we suddenly said, and now the only time you get to see this thing come together is when it actually lands. We created a space in Portland called the Retail Experience Center. And that was a playground garage space that we could just throw things through. Every Friday was demo day. And so we could take executives, we could take business people, technology people through the space and they would see a version of it. Um, the first version had like a laptop, you know, sellotape to the ceiling and a projector, had no real technology in there, but it gave you the sense of experience and we could rotate projectors through, we could rotate all these different pieces of technology through so that the tech people could, you know, actually get in the server and understand what we were doing and the business people could see it. And one of the things that that again reminded me of when you were talking, Larry, was that we we had the head of basketball come through and he was very skeptical. He didn't want to put technology in, in a store. He just wanted to have as many shoes in there as possible. And so we knew that we had a challenge with, with this GM. And the great thing was we just put a ball in his hand. We literally got him in the space and said, welcome, how you doing? You know, you're good. And then threw him a ball and stepped away. And he sort of stepped onto the space. And as soon as he stepped on, we knew his team. So it projected the court was his team. And it said, welcome, had his name. And he was like, oh, okay, I, I see this. And then there was a couple of drills. And then he had to look good in front of his work colleagues. And so he nailed it. Of course. <laughs> We'd lowered the hoop so he could dunk. <laughs> you know, like it, he, was, he looked amazing. And then he, sort of put, he just came off the court and said, got it. Keep going, guys. It taught or reminded me again, it's like the let the experience speak. Sometimes we get so caught up with 
the decks and the other things is that when people see it, they understand the value of that. I think one point was like actually building prototypes and getting people to see it. That's really important. The other thing it, it taught me, and, and this is a real, this is something I think you can testify to, is, is when we originally built one of the versions, it was technologically amazing. It did all had all the bells and whistles. And we brought in some of the store athletes. Uh, they call them athletes at Nike, the store associates. And we were testing with them because they were a customer as well. And they were the ones who actually were going to use this in stores all over the world. And we went through the experience and the athlete said, oh, I fucking love this. This is really, really great. Really, really top uh, experience. But there's one problem. He said, I feel like a funfair operator. All I do is like, I say, okay, scream if you want to go faster and then press a button. And he said, I could have a cigarette around the back and then come back and go, did you like it? And he said, and that was a real for us, a, sh- a moment. It's like, hold on. Those people are the most important people in this experience. Humans are always better than any other technology. This thing that we're building, this experience, should be a tool for that athlete to talk to a customer. And so when they're talking about what shoe they wanted or the confidence to buy a $400 pair of basketball boots, it should be in service of that conversation, not replacing it. So we fundamentally, and because we had the prototypes, you could fundamentally change things without affecting the timeline. We change a lot about the experience design in that space to be in a tool, if you like, for the athlete. And I think that was such an advantage of building these prototypes rather than just turning up in store and landing like a UFO in a store and trying to make it work. Is it more important for a brand, for the the voice, the personality to reflect the brand or to be its own thing? Like, you know, is it, what's the, how do you think about the, that? It's a, it's a really hot topic right now. Um, we launched um, Samuel L. Jackson as a voice, I think a couple of years ago. And we've recently been working with Shaq and um, Melissa McCarthy. And one of the decisions that was made was to have this Alexa as the MC, if you like. And Alexa is the person, you know, the personality traits we design for and the personality traits people expect. But you can, Alexa can hand off to other voices. So it can hand off to Shaq for various things. And if you ask Shaq for something, that Shaq can lean to something else. But there's lots of opportunities to work with other brands. And we've been working with skills for other people. So the question is, is what happens when we have multiple agents and how important is the brand experience in, in the voice itself? And we believe it's very important for the tenants of that personality, the tenants of Alexa that you're used to, because you're inviting Alexa into your most intimate spaces like bedrooms and kitchens. So, you know, a lot of people put a lot of trust in Alexa and we don't want to throw that away with suddenly... Um, something that doesn't sound right for the consumer and is like, what the hell? <laughs> I, didn't, I don't want that here. And so it's very important that we we focus and defend the brand tenants very closely and make sure that they come come to life in the experience. You and I, years ago when we were both, uh, you know, back in Beaverton on Nike's campus, I may have asked you this once or twice, uh, sort of your, uh, I, I've always been client side. I've, I've never worked uh, at agencies and, you know, you've had extensive experience with agencies and in roles that maybe I'll just call are more like experienced strategists kind of roles. How do you think about the role of strategy in experience design and uh, where does it play a role and uh, sort of where have you seen value in sort of that idea of experience strategy? Yeah, it's uh, we, how long do we have? We've got we, <laughs> <laughs> this is it. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting. I think I think now kind of as being both sides of of um, the bridge, if you like, or the river or the fence. Agencies often create divides between between various principles as a way of kind of enabling uh, real depth of thinking in one area. And so strategy within agency world came from or evolved from planning. 
back in the 1960s. And planning was very much around looking at data because before that it wasn't about data. The advertising was a beautiful, a beautiful woman smoking a cigarette, getting out of a car. You know, like it was, it was very much what the team and the client wanted. So in the 60s, audiences got more complicated, more places you could put ads. And so research was brought in and quant and coal research and then insights came out of that research and that kind of turned into strategy. What I found it's kind of on the client side is that those divides don't necessarily serve large businesses or small businesses. So a lot of those roles become more hybrid in some way. So you'll have a brand director or you'll have a CMO and strategy becomes more of the corporate strategy that the finance side. And so I think that the principles that that are brought to life in an agency are still true. Yeah, understanding the audience, understanding both the qual and the quant side of what you're trying to achieve, helping create a plan that isn't either way too far out or lands at the right time because you understand that it's important to rush this thing. And I think really that strategy is a creative function as much as art is. It's about creating a, designing a party, if you like. It's Yes, it's the look, but it's also the feel, the feel you want to get with your customers or your, your party friends. And so I think that understanding the audience, understanding what you want to achieve as a business, is it brand affinity? Is it load of money in the short term as possible you know those asks end of the day is that you have to prioritize those and the worst strategy is when someone i want to do it for everyone i want to do everything for everyone all the time yeah, yeah that's not a strategy <laughs> yeah that's, that's strategy right. <laughs> is about making hard decisions and saying right we're going to go for this audience not these and creating something that can align the teams and doing that and i think Ultimately, that is very much about experience design. It's about deciding who you're trying to work with, what you're trying to achieve, and coming up with a plan to do that. I love that. Switching gears for a little bit, when you think about the future of retail, what is the role of the human? 20 years, 30 years from now, do we have fully automated stores or are humans still there? It's interesting because I think what happened over the last two years has meant that every book we had has been thrown out. Um, you know, retail has been on an interesting incline, decline, explosion, revolution over the last 20 years. It's it's really seen an inclusion of, of digital, as we were mentioning earlier, but it's still slow. It's still one of those things, you know, hotels are often more digitally enabled than stores. There's still a lot of, I think, I think retail, physical retail still accounted for something like 70% of the of, of revenues, with 30% being online. So everything was based on things in the past, whether you're a, a consultant that looked at year-on-year -year data or you're a designer that looked at what's in the marketplace. Over the last two years, everything has been thrown out. You know, you can't trust a consultant who's looking at data from 2018 because that nothing's the same now. You can't trust 2020 because that was different. And so everything has been thrown out and it's everyone is trying to assess the impacts. I think... The future of retail is agility. The future of retail is being able to change two situations without locking yourself into a five-year plan. So next, you know, who knows what the weather's going to be like next year? I mean, I do. It's going to be terrible, but like, <laughs> who knows how terrible? You know, who knows how it's going to be? We're still going to need to buy services and products. And so how does, how does that respond to things like, you know, climate collapse? How does it respond to those? How does it respond to people opening and closing with pandemics coming back and forward? How do we respond to cultural shifts and brand shifts, which are coming from different places? I think it's always, it's always going to be about the human, you know, like a fully, a fully automated shop where robots come in and pick things up because it knows that that's what you already have is a possibility. But ultimately, that's still in service of, of the snacks you want at two o'clock in the morning because you've been playing PlayStation or the cereal you want for the kids. You know, it's, it's always going to be in service of a human. And I think 
I think both in terms of, you know, remembering that shopping or, you know, retail is a, is a fun experience as much as it is buying things. I think, you know, involving all of those as humans are a key to all of it, really. Yeah. You know, I, I, I personally am, am pretty bullish on the role of humans in the future, especially I tend to think about um, the, the types of complexity where humans become super critical, where you have today, it's really high technical complexity. Like this thing is confusing. I need someone to talk me through it. I think we'll, we'll probably AI or machine learn our way out of that. But where we have emotional complexity, I think that's where humans are super critical. Um, because when I'm really upset about something, uh, I don't want to go talk uh, to a robot. Uh, I want someone to look me in the eye and say, it's okay, or I've got this. So I think that's an interesting space for us. Here's a, that's interesting. Here's a, um, something that I've been thinking about. And it came from a conversation. I have teenage, teenage kids now. and um, my eldest came to me with a very difficult problem, um, a, a very emotionally tricky problem. It had impacts to probably the law, you know, like it was a big, it was one of those ones. <laughs> and I, I sat down with him and we, t we talked it out. We spent, I don't know, a good hour talking about it and kind of came to it and it, it got heated and it didn't feel like it resolved anything. And my wife had been listening the whole time and she said, you realize he didn't need a solution. You realize he didn't want you to solve it for him. He just wanted you to listen. And I was like, damn, wives are so smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been thinking about it from an Alexa point of view as well, because Alexa is such a, 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 uh, an answerer, you know, it solves things. And it's an engineering-led company. Amazon is an engineering company. So it solves things. And engineers like fixing things. And so turn the lights on. Yes. You know, tell me the weather. Yes. And what if it is something that says, you know, Alexa asks, how was your day? And you're like, do you know what? It's really shitty. And, and Alexa just then says, you know, tell me more, like how come? And we create an environment which is much more around listening because it does a really good job of listening and, and kind of that intelligence of saying, you know, it's okay, everything's going to be great. It's something that actually it's the listening function is the bit we need, not the advice function. Mm. So I've been trying to think about the role of, and, and looking at, you know, through the pandemic with like headspace and looking at the kind of role of, of therapy and how therapy works. And just, is there a space for more listening and less telling? I would love to hear from both of you some of your favorite retail experiences. Maybe we can start with Larry and then we'll end with Toby. Wow. Uh, you know, I think uh, one of my favorite retail experiences recently has all been about um, eating. Uh, <laughs> because, because, because I love it. I do a lot of it and, uh, it's great. I, I just, I recently realized, so over the past, I don't know if this occurred to anyone else, but, um, sort of over the past year and a half or so, uh, these apps that we've used for different, uh, functions, uh, have, especially around the, the idea of restauranting and eating and, and et cetera, and culinary arts, they've all gotten like extremely better. So I used to use Yelp literally only to find a place that was near me. And then I would go just call the place or I would go to some other app to go actually order. Yelp now is completely integrated into like, it's got like, it knows where I'm at and it has like all my, it has my contact information saved. It shows me history from years back and I can actually choose any other of the, if, if I want to do Uber Eats, if I want to do all, Grubhub, all the things are integrated into this one interface through Yelp. And they've been like, I swear this happened over the last six months because it wasn't like that before. I just, I don't know uh, technically, but for me, that has been an amazing sort of small innovation that has changed my life drastically. <laughs> I'll go a little more traditional. 
And I think for me, like switching from digital to retail was something that I didn't even realize I was kind of doing. I was just, I took on a project and took another project and then, then now I'm, I'm in retail, which was a funny thing. Um, but I've realized that I, I kind of go back to what my parents did and how things I've always wanted to run a shop, you know, so it's, it's kind of feels like it's something else. And I think what's interesting is like two things for me was like really proud of was one was both of them are Nike examples. Cause that's where I got to experiment and play. And one of them was house of innovation, which, you know, Larry knows a lot about and did, did a lot of work on was going into the house of innovation in New York on, on um, fifth avenue and just seeing the scale of it it the thing i was lucky enough to be there when we just opened and we had this incredible installation which had the sound of sport so everywhere you were moving on the store there was like tennis balls bouncing or a basketball bouncing or people on the court and the energy in that place it just i remember taking my family and bring taking them through it and it just felt like you're a kind of part nightclub but part kind of the the real objective for us was to take what we the fun we had on campus and the brand and put it in these spaces around the world and it i delivered on that and i just remember the mouth my the mouths of my kids kind of like wow as they kind of went around the space that was one and i think the counter to that was um nike live which was a much smaller focused store for predominantly for uh, female athletes but just much smaller communities and i remember talking to some of the athletes in the store and the community around Melrose and around that space in LA was they developed the store staff were actually going to the smoothie bars next door and they were going to the the bar class next door and the customers or the, the athletes didn't feel like customers they just felt like friends and they were like hey so, hey, so have you what have you got in week oh I've got this in or I've put it under the desk for you and it was this wonderful kind of community space again that we'd hoped to create and the brand kind of pulled people together, but it was the staff that had kind of created those connections and really created these wonderful communities around the physical space, which was just incredible to see. Two completely different experiences, one very much a, a cathedral to the brand and then the other one a much more kind of one-to-one -one experience. But it just it was amazing to be able to you know, imagine those and then bring those to life. Oh, that's great. Thank you both for sharing. And Toby, thank you so much for joining us. I love this conversation. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. It's lovely to see you, Larry, again. You as well. <laughs> Listeners, to see more of Toby's work, visit Amazon and check out all the Alexa devices. Okay, it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. Larry, you'll be happy to know I'm always sharing video games as my weekly dose. I feel like that's all I'm doing these days. Ah, It's either gardening or, or video games. This time I want to share a very cool game. It just came out for, I believe, Steam and Nintendo Switch where I'm playing it. It's called Dreamscraper. And it's a really interesting game. It's sort of like the idea behind it is you play this woman and she's getting into these nightmares that are basically like, you know, fighting monsters in these like somewhat realistic, but also fantastical environments that are like part of her life. So the first one is like, where she would go camping with her family but it's like all like distorted and you really feel like you're playing in a dream and in fact the way the game starts is like she lays down and she just kind of like falls through the bed into then like these arenas <laughs> uh it's a rogue like so you know when you die in quotes like the game is really over and you have to start over all the way from the beginning i love this kind of games because they're so much more like real and like 
there's real consequence. Yeah, and like, exactly. <laughs> you can't just me- yeah, you can't just start over from where you just like last saved, right? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, this game uh, was made by, and I just lost it again. There we go. Afterburner Studios. So big props to them. My favorite part of this game, besides like the action and you're like hacking and slashing with like swords and spells and all kinds of cool stuff, the visuals are beautiful. It really feels like you are playing in like a painting. So much so that like, so you're in these different arenas and you go through like through a doorway and it kind of like goes into the next sort of arena. When you go from like room to room, the painting kind of like collapses on itself. And then when you show up in the next arena, like it repaints. And it's just like, I love moving between areas in this game because the way it kind of builds just feels so like ethereal and beautiful. So the visuals are amazing. The action is super fun. It's a it's an indie game. It's it's very I forget how much it costs, but it's very easy to get grab. It's it's accessible. So check out Dreamscraper on Steam or Nintendo Switch. Larry, over to you. Man, that's great. I I feel like uh, following that mine is super lame, but I'll <laughs> say this: I I have been doing uh, just a ton of uh, thinking around um, time and like how I should spend time and why I should spend time in certain places. And so I started to uh, research a couple of books and one book that I, uh, that I recently read is actually an old book. It was written or I guess published in 1967 by Peter Drucker, uh, who's like, you know, managerial sort of theoretical consultant guru. And I'll, I'll say this, the, the book itself uh, is written, uh, there's a, it's heavy patriarchy. Like it's like everything is, when man does in men and me and man, 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 and like, so we, we get past that. Like once you get past that, some of the principles I think really are interesting. And it's, it's called the, the effective executive. And he talks about sort of effectiveness and what it means to do that. Some tenants that he talks about are sort of the ideas of like, uh, you know, focusing on contribution, uh, you know, building on strengths, uh, sort of focusing on few major and delivering results against few things, not many things. And one of the things he talks about is, is really knowing where your time goes. And so um, he starts to kind of lay out principles of, uh, you know, of a, you know, early chapter talk that's, that's titled Know Thy Time, where he starts to talk about things like, um, you know, how you uh, not only count your time, so how you like do that and record it, but then how you manage it, and ultimately how you then consolidate it. And so like the, the, the you know, the difference of having uh, lots of 15 minute blocks uh, that are broken up throughout the day versus having one full two hour block, right? And the power that that brings. And so anyway, uh, for me, it was very, the principles are great. Uh, I thought it was amazing. Peter Drucker, the effective executive. That's awesome. Can I share another? If you and I are on the same journey, my man, Uh, I just read a book (laughs) called 4,000 Weeks. Have you seen this one? Okay, no, I have not. Yeah, and I think he actually, references Drucker in his book. This is a new book, um, but I guess we only get 4,000 weeks on this earth. <laughs> oh, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> what week am I on now? Oh, I no. know. And I read it and I was like, oh God. But it was really great in terms of like, um, it might be the other side of the coin from Drucker, but you know, the patriarchy, as you said, and like the very like, this guy was sort of like on that road of like productivity and like using your time wisely. And then did all this research about 
time and even just the fact that we say spend time you know it's like what is time um just you hit me with those questions i think you'd really enjoy it yeah four thousand weeks four thousand weeks. Out. Okay, there you awesome. go audience you got you know three for two there <laughs> <laughs> i love it awesome that's awesome listeners if you have a great weekly dose of good design please tweet or share it with me i'm happy to share it on the podcast you can tweet at me at sam aquilano larry this was so fun thanks for being here man got to have you back on sometime Thanks for having me. This is great. That's our show. Again, I want to thank Larry Rogers and Toby Barnes for joining us and for such a great conversation. I loved it. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to some of the resources and projects we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. As always, you can find us and find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook, so you can just search design museum everywhere and we will pop up. We also have an awesome weekly email newsletter where you get the latest about design museum in your inbox. Check that out. You can sign up on our website and please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to design is everywhere. Anywhere you listen to podcasts while you're at it, you know, drop a five-star review, a rating, a review. We love it. That always helps people find the show, helps us reach more people so we can chat about the transformative power of design. Your support means a lot. We'd really appreciate it. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with research, support, and writing by Tanya Chavla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.